Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. As we get started with today's Bible study, just a quick note, we will end at 11.15 today because I know the Women of St. Michael luncheon happens. So for those of you joining us online a few times a year, what, maybe four times or so a year, we've got a luncheon here at the church that starts gathering at 11.15. So it's a nice opportunity for us to just end a little early and let everyone get from here to there and hopefully not cut too short those of you joining us online. So today we will end a little early so you don't have to get up and walk out and defend me or anything like that. Um, You'll get there, no worries. And so just a quick reminder that we've got podcasts of old lessons at stmichael.org slash rbs. And we'd love for you to join our email list. We've got, I don't know, something like 400 plus people on our email list. And so if you're not getting an email on Mondays with a reminder of each lesson, then we'd love for you to join that list. You can either email bovemussy at stmichael.org or you can send a note right here in the chat if you are online. So either way, if you're here in person, make sure you sign up on the lists as you go out today if you are not getting emails. If you're getting emails, then we know you and we will continue to send those messages to you. And then one last thing, many of you have gotten commentaries in our bookshop. If you've not yet, know there are, might be eight or so copies left if you're interested. Um, bookshop is open during the week here at St. Michael and on Sundays. And the book that I referenced, the Zora Neale Hurston book, um, a few of you have asked about, and they're supposed to be in the bookshop sometime this week. If you're interested in adding that to your reading list, it's a good one. And so let's open with prayer and we'll jump right in. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for the gift of this life and for bringing us together today that we may have the privilege of studying your word. Help us to put down those things that worry us, those things that weigh on us. Make some space inside of us for your spirit to fill us up so that we may be transformed, transformed in our relationship with you, our relationships with one another, so that we may go out into the world with courage to wrap your arms of love around all those we meet. Be with our friends today who cannot be here in person or to join us online, those who need your healing touch, and rest the souls of those we love and see no longer. All this we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, gang, let's jump on in to chapter 6. I had a number of really good questions this week, so for those of you who are not here physically asking, um, you can send those questions either in the chats online or email above throughout the week. And there are two I wanted to jump in with because I do think it sets us up well for chapters 6 and 7. So the first question I got was from a couple weeks ago, why does God use the word or the name I am, as in I am sent you, rather than just saying it's me, I'm sending you. Um, or give them your name. So what's interesting about that question this week is that we actually get God revealing the name, God's name, for the first time. But if you remember back with the burning bush, when Moses said, who am I supposed to tell them sent me? God says, I am. Tell them I am sent you. That's a little strange in English. And so honestly, this is a translation issue. In a sense, what we see in the Hebrew is the word ayah, and ayah is the verb to be. And so it doesn't quite translate cleanly into English. And so classically, the translation has been I am. And so I am sent you. Really what gets at this verb of to be 
is a bit more like I am, I was, and I will be. You know, if you think about what we do in our Eucharist services, we say, you know, God who is, who was, and who is to come. Similar idea here, where in a sense, God is really this self-sufficient, self-sustaining, always present being. And so the idea of aya, this verb to be, is not perfectly translated as I am in English. It's more the idea that I was, I am, I will be. It's kind of universal everything. That's really where the I am comes from. And it just becomes clunky in Egypt, in English, to say all of that rather than just to make it a bit more succinct as the I am. Does that kind of make sense? I'm actually not sure who asked that question. So is there a follow-up or maybe a clarification that you may want? Oh, thank you, Steve. All right. Okay, thank you. Great. We'll keep them coming. I like those questions. The other question that I thought had a lot of bearing on today's lesson. A few weeks ago, I stated that there was no historical proof of the existence of Moses. And can you expand that or share what I mean by that? So this is a very good question. And I will tell you, many people have either emailed or texted or grabbed me in the hall and said, but wait, isn't there this thing or that thing? Or I've even had a few people send me articles. That's wonderful. The answer is still no. Um, that there is no... I, I know that there is... I had someone send me an article from The Sun... Um, out of England, and I thought, well, that's kind. That's not exactly it. Um, that's sort of like saying that. What's that rag in New York that um, has all of the drama? The Inquirer. Thank you. That's sort of like saying the Inquirer reported that a tablet was discovered. Some, you know, that's a nice story. It's a feel good. It's going to sell some papers, but nah, not quite the integrity that we're looking for when it comes to archaeological evidence. And so here's what I really want to say. I want to say that there is historic evidence of the Israelites. The problem is that there's no historic evidence that we have yet discovered. There's my qualification. Because if we were having this conversation, say, 80 years ago, the Dead Sea Scrolls hadn't been discovered. If we were having this conversation 30 years ago, there are a number of tablets that has since been discovered that had yet to be discovered. And so when I say there is no historical evidence, it's not that nothing exists. Here's the nuance. No one has yet discovered anything. And so who knows what's in a cave somewhere or under some sand somewhere or a building has been built upon a thing that would give us this evidence. We just don't know it yet. What I want to do is put this into, I want to tell you what we do know. And I think that that is helpful because it's, it's very easy for me to say there's no historical evidence yet discovered and us to jump to, then it's not true. That's not what I'm saying. And I think that we have had the conversation before in here, the difference between something being historical and something being true. And so I hope I have unpacked that multiple different times in our Genesis study where there are stories from scripture that I believe are very true, and yet their his historicity is not present. And so I know that's a very hard thing for us as Americans, because in a sense, in the last couple hundred years, we've completely conflated those two ideas. 
And you've also heard me say that in the last 10 years, we've taken those away. Um, but we've got a sense about us that something is historic and true, and they are mutually, they, they are not mutually exclusive. They are. You can have true stories and they not be historic. And so in a sense, that's really what we're dealing with here. So what I want to tell you is that we have two steels that give historic evidence. These are, in a sense, um, monolith stones where the Egyptians or other um, organizations or uh, ancient peoples would write historic stories down. That's how they would tell their stories for generations. So you've seen obelisks and things like that where you see images and that sort of stuff told stories. These are a bit more like it just in text, historic documents. And so we've got one that's called the Merneptah steel. And Merneptah was an Egyptian pharaoh, the son of Ramses the Great, or Ramses II. That Merneptah steel actually is the oldest thing we have discovered that references the Israelites. And so on that steel, we get this description of Israel is laid waste and its seed is no more. It describes them as a semi-nomadic people that have essentially been eliminated. That's what this steel says. Well, we know that's not exactly the case, but it is interesting that we get this reference to the Israelites on this steel. And that comes from about 1200 BCE. Um, just a quick note, if anyone's joining us this year for the first time. Before Jesus, I reference BCE, which is before the Common Era, and then after Jesus, I use the term CE, which is the Common Era, which is just kind of a bit more inclusive update of the BC and AD that we all grew up with. And so 1200 BCE is where this Merneptah steel comes from that references the Israelites as being essentially eliminated. Okay, so we know the Israelites are somehow connected to Egypt. This pharaoh has recorded their elimination. Okay. Fast forward about 350 years, we see another steel, the Kirk steel, that comes out of the Assyrian Empire that describes how a battle of Karkar that is in northern Syria today halted temporarily the expansion of the Assyrian Empire south into what is known as the land of Canaan or, the is or Israel because of a regional alliance that included the biblical king Ahab. And so it's referenced in this seal as Ahab the Israelite. And so from 1200 BCE, we get an Egyptian record of Israelites kind of being eliminated. And then around 850 BCE, 350 years later, we get the Assyrians referencing King Ahab, the Israelite. And we, of course, know Ahab from the Bible as well. What that does is that gives us somewhat of bookends around the Israelites going into the Promised Land and establishing their kingdom prior to the exile. If you remember from discussions in the past, the exile began when the Assyrians came down into the northern kingdom of Israel and squashed the northern kingdom. Then the Babylonians overtook the Assyrians, and they came all the way down into the southern kingdom of Israel, and they took them into exile. So the Assyrians and the Babylonians are both part of what became the capital E exile of the Jewish people. And it's the, those Assyrians that reference the resistance they experienced by a surprisingly strong group of people led by King Ahab the Israelite. Okay. 
Ah, that's enough. Any clarity about that? I should add that as I dug around, because I got enough questions about this that I thought, I really need to know more. I, kinda, I tried to dig a bit about what then do we know? And I came across a very interesting theory. Apparently, some scholars, modern scholars, in the last 20 or so years have actually begun to develop a theory around Moses in general that Moses himself was not an Israelite, that Moses was indeed Egyptian. And there are a few pieces of this theory that I find kind of compelling. One would be his name. Moses is not an Israelite form of a name. It's actually very Egyptian. Think of Tutmosis, right? Or you've got Ramesses, Moses and Ramesses. It's the same root structure of the word. So Moses itself is a name that is often part of the Egyptian regal naming structure. The idea that he was raised in the court, I mean, could a Hebrew child be raised in the Egyptian court? I guess possibly. That seems quite far-fetched. It makes a lot more sense that he would have been Egyptian and just raised in the royal court. Then you get this moment where we saw, I think it was last week, right, where Zipporah has to circumcise their son to save Moses's life. And so it begs the question, why would Moses not have circumcised his son? Because that was a very common thing for the Israelites to do for hundreds of years prior to that moment. Well, what if Moses was Egyptian? It would kind of make sense that he had gone out into the wilderness, married a nice girl, they'd had a son, and it just wasn't part of their thing until that moment when God called him into being part of the covenant that he had made with Abraham. And the symbol of that covenant was male circumcision. And I kind of thought that was relatively compelling. Now, does that matter? That does not matter. So I want you to hear me, whatever. I mean, if Moses was Egyptian, he, it, doesn't, it doesn't even matter. But hey, I thought that was kind of interesting. So any questions or clarity about that before we jump into chapter six? You know you love little ideas like that. Okay. Let's jump in chapter six. We have come to the moment of action here. We've got just two parts in today's study. The first part's going to be Moses's second commissioning. And the second part is going to be preparing for the plagues. Those are really the two parts we're going to look at in chapter six through the first half of chapter seven. So in chapter six, we come to this moment where the action really begins. This is really where we get that moment, the arc of the story. Moses is now back in Egypt. Moses is talking with the Israelites. Moses is going to Pharaoh's court. And Moses is really kicking off what's going to be the drama of the plagues and then the actual exodus of all the Israelites from Egypt. And so we get in this moment in chapter six, a second commissioning. And so before I read the actual passage, I want to put this into context. We know from Genesis that there are often two versions of stories that are both recorded in Scripture. So if we look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we get two creation stories. There, there would have been no concern at all from the people who wrote Genesis that they had two stories that effectively went against each other. And if you go back and look at chapters 1 and 2, if you're unfamiliar, you get a different order of creation. 
you get a whole different arc. One is really technical and one is very relational. Nobody would have minded that at all when this was written. Now we, as sort of modern people, say, well, one story must be right and one story must be wrong. No, that is not at all what the writers of the Bible would have thought. They would have said it was two versions of the same story. And we've touched on this in the past where if you were to think of if someone were to write your story, maybe a spouse or a sibling or a child or a parent, they would write a true story of you. But would they be the same story? Not at all. That is really what we're seeing here. And so the Hebrew people, the Israelites, would have had no problem with that because they're both true. They're just different. Yeah, sounds right. We get a similar kind of moment here in Exodus. We get a second telling of Moses' commissioning. And by commissioning, I mean when Moses goes to the burning bush and he says, what's happening here? And God said, hey, it's me. And then God said, go to Egypt and do these things. And Moses said, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. And God effectively says, it doesn't matter. You got to go anyway. And Moses says, okay, that's the first commissioning. We get a second moment here where God, you could say, reminds Moses of what had already happened. Or you could say, and I think this is really the truth, it's just another version of that story. And it's different. It emphasizes something different. And that emphasis is what I want to dig into. Because we could read the first part of chapter 6 and kind of gloss over it. It's like, been there, done that. We've, we've already read this part. But there is some slight tweaks in the versions of these stories that I think actually have some import. So let's look at chapter 6. We're going to just start with verse 2. God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they resided as aliens. I have also heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Let's pause there. This second commissioning story introduces two different ideas from the first commissioning story. So we're going to pick those two apart. In verse 2, verses 2 and 3, God speaks to Moses and says, I am the Lord. Then he says, I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So it's interesting that that question we began with why is God's name I am, is in a sense kind of solved in this moment. When God says, I am the Lord, the Lord, the word there is Yahweh. And so now we get the name of God. God's name is Yahweh. But God had only been known as God Almighty, El Shaddai. And so if we know anything about Jewish prayers, you know El Shaddai is a name that's used regularly in the same way that we might say, gracious God, almighty God, Lord God, whatever. 
we just call God different forms of the same idea. Here what we get is a revelation of the name. So whereas before, God was simply God Almighty El Shaddai, now God is becoming relational. And God is saying, my name is Yahweh. And so Yahweh begins to be the name that is used throughout the Old Testament when there is an emphasis of relationship. That relationship idea is very interesting. This is really the point at which God pivots. If we start from the very beginning with creation all the way to this point in Exodus, God has been God, separate. Now God is beginning to relate to humanity in a very real way. It is that relationship, that knowing, when you know someone's name, not their title, all of a sudden they become a real person. And you can have an actual relationship, maybe even a friendship with that person. And so this is the seed that grows into what will become very important for Christian theology. How often do we talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus or a personal relationship with God? We talk about praying directly to God one-on-one. -on -one. That can easily slip into buddy Jesus, which that's not good. But instead, what we have is this capacity, this calling into an actual relationship with God. God is still God. God is still that El Shaddai, that God Almighty. But now God's gotten a little color. Now we know God's name, Yahweh. Then there's a second idea here in this commissioning. In verse 6, we see that God says, I will redeem you. Well, that's very interesting. Because this is when the idea of redemption or restoration that we then begin to use as this idea of saving is really planted. So before, there was a physical sense of you will not be in slavery anymore. I will take you out of slavery and bring you into the land. Okay, that's great. Saving someone from slavery, that physical reality is very important and would have been, the Israelites would have been very grateful. Redeem. That's a much more spiritual notion. So what God is really saying here in this second commissioning passage, what the story is really doing is giving us another perspective of God's actual work. This is not going to be just your physical bodies out of slavery in Egypt into land in Canaan. Part of it. But this is actually going to be a spiritual transformation, a spiritual saving, a spiritual redemption. And then what happens is that God calls the Israelites into a deeper form of covenant. Before this, the covenant with Abraham required one very simple sign from humans. What was that? Male circumcision. That was kind of it. God basically said, I'm going to do all these things for you, and all you really need to do is show me a sign that you've received what I have given. Now the Mosaic Covenant is actually moving humanity into a much more reciprocal way of relating to God. It's no longer just sign of receipt, but instead it's asking people to do something as a way of reciprocating 
the kind of redemption that God offers. So, in the second telling, we see in verse 7, God says, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. That word, know, is much bigger than just receive. That word know is actually calling people into an action, and that's going to be an acknowledgement of what God has done. And the way we acknowledge what God has done, we know this, we worship, we give, we serve. That is our acknowledgement. When you hear us talk about giving of ourselves in service or giving of ourselves in our giftedness, you've been hearing us talk about this for weeks and weeks and weeks explicitly, this sense of time, talent, treasure, all of our giftedness, when we give that back, what we're doing is we're acknowledging that we received first from God. You know that old joke that you've never heard me preach, but I always think it every time I go up there, is, you know, whenever it's stewardship season, right? God's given you all this stuff and he lets you keep 90% of it, right? That old sort of joke. It's that very central idea. It's all from God anyway. We do not possess our gifts. We are, in a sense, caretakers of our gifts. And what God is calling us into in this covenant, what God wants from us is a very real acknowledgement of how God has blessed us. This is not philanthropy. This is not charity. This is not nicety. No, what we have is a gift, and God wants us to acknowledge that in a very real way. And when we think about the scale at which the Bible sets up, it's actually a pretty small acknowledgement, 10%. I mean, that's like sales tax. And so for us, that acknowledgement is actually kind of cheap. And yet we always feel as if it's so, so very grand and expensive, but that it's not. And it's this moment here where we're shifting from what was essentially just receiving God's blessings to reciprocating and acknowledging those blessings in the way that we live in the world. Any questions or thoughts on that? And in your pews today are pledge cards. No, I'm just kidding. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's finish up this beginning second commission section. Turn to verse 9. We'll read a few more. Verse 9. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his land. But Moses spoke to the Lord, the Israelites have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, poor speaker that I am? Thus the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them orders regarding the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, charging them to free the Israelites from the land of Egypt. So we have here a moment, we'll pause there. We have here a moment where Moses again kind of tries to get out of it. Moses has been given the gifts he needs. This whole story of Moses is important for us because this entire year is meant to give us a very rich, deep, 360-degree character study of Moses so that we can do David next year and then Jesus two years from now. 
This character study of Moses, it is critical that we keep in front of us Moses' humanity. Moses can so, I mean, he can seem like a superhero. David, next year, when we really unpack David, David reminds us very easily of his humanity. David is, screws up, and does horrible things over and over and over again. Moses, Moses is kind of good. I mean, when we think back at the end of this year, and when we think back at the mistakes that Moses made, I mean, not really. You know, Moses hits a rock and gets some water without talking to God first. Can't go into the promised land. I mean, we'll get there. That's part of the story. But it's Moses' mistakes are kind of minimal. David, on the other hand, David takes ugly mistakes to a whole new level. Um, and so we do not have to be reminded of David's messiness and humanity. But Moses here can, if we're not careful, seem just superhuman. And so when we have these little glimpses of his humanity, I want us to really grab onto those and remember. So here Moses has gone from the burning bush where he begged and bargained and grieved and got mad and God said, get on with it. And then here, what does Moses say? I went and talked to the Israelites and they didn't listen to me. And so if they're not going to listen to me, if Pharaoh's not going to listen to me, I don't want to go. And God says, you're going. And this is what you're going to do. And that's what we're going to get to in the next section. So Moses, again, reveals his humanity. Just want to make it clear that he is still just human. And now we're going to go into the second section of today's study, preparing for the plagues. Jump to chapter 7, verse 8. Chapter 7, verse 8. After the second commissioning section, we get a long list of genealogy, which... If that is your thing, then knock yourself out. I'm not going to talk about that. Um, instead, we're going to go to chapter 7, verse 8. Here we go. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a wonder, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and they became snakes. But Aaron's staff swallowed up theirs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen. We'll pause there. I love this part of the Ten Commandments. This was, like, as a boy... I looked forward to this moment, right? Staff goes down on the stairs. Remember it was on the stairs? I, I don't know why that burned in my mind. And then it's leaning against the stairs and all of a sudden it goes, and it kind of wiggles down into, oh, it was the coolest. And then, of course, Pharaoh's people come out and they throw their staffs down and they become snakes. And the snakes are like, you know, kind of like hissing at each other. And then you get this obvious cutaway because, you know, they only had so much special effects at that point. And then you see like the tail of one snake hanging out of the mouth of the other. God, it was so good. And so this, this is that scene where Aaron's standing there in the court and you've got the staff becoming the snake and then the other snakes come and then they fight each other and Aaron's snake wins. This is awesome. But what is happening here in this moment is very important for us to understand. You've heard me say before that the Jewish people are monotheistic people, but 
They do not believe that other gods are unreal. They just put their faith in one of them. And so the God that the Jewish people in this ancient moment put their faith in is Yahweh. It does not mean that they don't believe all these other gods are out there. They've just chosen their winner, right? They've picked their horse, and now it's time for the race. And so here in this moment, the storytellers are telling the story of God versus God. That's this. This is like King Kong and Godzilla going at it. And so the way that this big battle is set up is that Yahweh is going to defeat the Pharaoh. Remember who the Pharaoh is. The Pharaoh is God incarnate, God on earth, the son of God, whatever you want to say. It is not an accident that early Christians begin to understand Jesus as somewhat divine. Is Jesus God? Well, he says the son of God. Does that mean fully God? Maybe not fully God, but yet it has to be, but he's also human. So then it's both, right? You see this logical progression of trying to figure out who Jesus is. Well, the idea that Jesus is son of God, God incarnate, God on earth, this is not original. Pharaoh says this. Caesar says this. You've got all of these ancient empires whose leaders at some point in their history take on this mantle of being God incarnate on earth. And so their authority is not just like a monarchy. Their authority is divine and cosmic. When we see this scene happen, we are setting up what will become this cosmic battle. It is not just God versus king. It is God versus God. That is the way the storyteller wants you to hear this story. And it becomes critical that we understand that identity because when they go out in the wilderness, they do some really random things. And if you don't understand that they see all these gods as real, they've just picked one, it seems as if what they do is nonsensical. And then we can see that tracked all the way through. I'll say a bit more about that in one second. Yeah, Bob. So David asks, does uh, do the Pharaoh's wizards really turn to ask the snakes as Moses does? Or is this a literary tool that makes them nervous and it doesn't even matter? Ah, no. Okay, so here's the question. David asks if the Pharaoh's wizards actually turn their staffs into snakes. Is all of this really happening and does that even matter? So the answer is, nope, doesn't matter, but good question. Um, no, I, I have no problem with this. I, um, we, <laughs> we are presented with sensational, fantastic, miracle moments in the Bible. This is one of those fantastic moments. Did it happen? I don't know. Could it have happened? Sure. I mean, God's God, right? I put no limits on God. I always say God is bigger than we think. And so did we actually have a moment here where a couple staffs became snakes and one ate the other one? Sounds good to me. I think it makes the story great. But I do think, not to be flippant, that the answer doesn't matter is the most important question to ask. Does it matter if this actually happened? Not to me. Faith and belief is grounded in things you just cannot prove. That's okay. 
if you seek to prove with evidence, with like a scientific method style proof, then you actually get to a place where, y'all, have I told you the story of going down to, uh, where are the, where are the um, dinosaurs, uh, where you can walk in the footprints? Glen Rose, thank you. So you go down to Glen Rose and you go to kind of walk in the footprints in the river and stuff like that, which is the coolest if you have not done this, it's so fun. Right before you enter that park, there's a creation museum. That's the most fun anyone can have, is at a museum where they literally have humans riding dinosaurs, right? And it's this, oh, and I think, bless them. You know, that is so, that is so sweet. Um, the gymnastics that you have to go through to somehow disprove archeological evidence or scientific method in order to say that, yep, humans rode velociraptors around and went, I mean, I, it's, it's so unnecessary. This is not necessary. It is okay to understand truth and not historic. It's complex. It's the, not the way I was, I grew up understanding things, but the idea, did the snakes actually eat each other here? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Because this story is a true story that can give us amazing, brilliant, faithful foundations about the way, who we are and whose we belong to, what we are to do in the world, how we're to treat one another. And if we lose our minds on whether humans rode dinosaurs or staffs became snakes, don't worry about it. And that's just gonna be everything this entire way. Did the river really become blood? It, it, don't worry about it. Because the story is so rich, and if we start to parse it out as something literal, we lose what is so good about it. And so let it just be a good story, and let it fill you up and inspire you and change you, and don't worry about the rest of it. Okay, so we've got this God versus, how am I doing? Well, I got a couple minutes. We've got this God versus God moment here. I want to finish this by saying this is not an ancient problem. This is still a modern problem. For example, many of you know that I've done many interfaith panels in my career, and one of the first questions that I, we are always asked when we do interfaith panels together where I'm discussing with other faith leaders from non-Christian traditions is, do you think you believe in the same God? When you pray, do you pray to the same God? Some version of, is this all the same God? What's behind that question is in a sense a misunderstanding. How many gods are out there? One. And so when you pray in any way to God, you're praying to God. I'm not deciding if it's the same God. There's only one. So it seems simple to me. But even in our modern context, people talk about the Muslim God or the Hindu gods or the, as if there's still all these gods up there. And we've got the Yahweh, the whatever you want to say, like the real one, but then all these others are out there. No, that's not the way this is. We should, I don't say should very often, but we should be 100% comfortable, totally satisfied. God is God, that's it. 
And if somebody's praying to God in a way that is not the way we pray, do you really think God's not going to receive that as something genuine? Absolutely not. I mean, what kind of God do you think we pray to who would reject someone's prayer because they didn't use the right words or they didn't think the right way? How, in a sense, egotistical of us to think that we have the right way to do something. God's always bigger than we think. And so what we see here in this ancient moment is, in a sense, a misunderstanding of what God is really calling them into. When God says, I am, God says, I am who I am, I am, I was, I will be, God's making it very clear. That's total. That's it. That's everything. Just me. And still, in their humanity, it is hard for them to see just how total and complete, omniscient God actually is. And so the way the story is told is going to be a God battle worked out on earth, and the people are going to suffer. You know what happens when two elephants fight? The grass dies. And so we are, in a sense, going to watch the humanity and the destruction while this godly battle takes place. And next week, we get to the plagues. We are there. And so I appreciate you all very much. Send your questions in, and we'll see you next week. Bye.